The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of Him and through Him and to Him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study this morning, we always need to make sure we're in fellowship. Whenever we sin, Scripture says, we grieve and quench the Holy Spirit. Yet it is the Holy Spirit's ministry in our life that teaches us. It is the Holy Spirit who produces growth. It is the Holy Spirit that stores doctrine in our soul. So whenever we sin and we grieve and quench that ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, we need to recover fellowship and the filling of the Spirit through simple confession of sin, which means simply to admit or acknowledge our sin to God the Father. And we're instantly forgiven. Why? Because all sin was paid for by Jesus Christ on the cross. There is no sin that we can commit that is too great for the grace of God or that God in His omniscience did not know about before He ever created Adam in the garden. And so every sin that we have committed has been paid for by Christ on the cross. And we never surprise God. We never commit some sin that is too great for Him. We never commit some sin for the... Fifteenth thousandth time that's just one time too many for God. Every sin has been paid for completely. So we always take a few moments in silent prayer to make sure we're in fellowship, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. It is in your light that we see light and that all of our thinking, all of our concepts, everything that we have ultimately must be evaluated in, the, uh, in comparison to what you have revealed to us. It is only as we submit our thinking to your thoughts and begin to think your thoughts after you that we are indeed uh, on the process or growth of sanctification. We are to renew our minds, renew our thinking, and that is the foundational message given to the church, to every believer, and it is up to pastor teachers to communicate that, to communicate the truth so that people can learn how to think as you would have us to think. Fathers, we study your word this morning. We pray that you would help us to understand these things and see how they relate to our lives. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. I remember years ago, I don't know if it's still around, but it's been a long time since I've seen it, 
There was a bumper sticker, a little one of these little magnetic decal things you stick on your refrigerator, and it said three sentences. God said it, I believe it, and that settles it. Now, lots of people like that say, there's something wrong with that. It's got the second and third statements in the wrong place. It's not, God said it, I believe it, and that settles it. It's God said it, that settles it. Now the issue is whether or not we believe it. The tendency of all of us, I guess, to make the gospel more man-centered than it is, is amazing to me sometimes. But it is because the Bible is the self-authenticating Word of God that we are impressed with its veracity, its authority, and we have one choice, and that is to either accept it or to reject it. But that acceptance or rejection is not based on um, its inadequacy because the Word itself contains its own authority. Sometimes we get into conversations with unbelievers or with other Christians who perhaps aren't very well trained or in rebellion. They say, well, how do I know that you're right? How do you, how do you know that, that's the, that the Bible is right? And then we appeal to the Bible. We say, well, the Bible says. Well, and immediately the response is, well, you can't do that. That's circular reasoning. You can't use the Bible to prove the Bible. But you see, they're wrong. Because whatever, if you use any system to prove the Bible, then what you're saying is that system has authority over the Bible. But if the Bible is the very Word of God, God's revelation to man, to what higher authority can we appeal to validate God? There is none. So be careful to not fall into the trap when talking with an unbeliever or when discussing anything with with someone who just isn't very well trained in the Scriptures. Don't fall into the trap of validating the wrong question. You know, we've gone over this before. Sometimes people ask what sound like legitimate questions, but they're not. It's like the guy who asks, asks you if you've quit beating your wife yet. However you answer that, you're wrong. You're in trouble. See, we can show why the Bible validates itself as the Word of God, but we're not going to some external system to prove that the Bible is the Word of God. You can look at evidences that substantiates the Bible's claim to be the Word of God, but you cannot go to some external system to prove it is the Word of God. Now, we are continuing our study of 1 John chapter 2, and last time we entered into a study of the doctrine of inspiration. We're in the first paragraph of this uh, section of the epistle which describes John's purpose in writing the epistle and he states in verse 12 I am writing to you little children because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake verse 13 I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who has been from the beginning I'm writing to you young men because you have overcome the evil one I have written to you children because you know the father I've written to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. I've written to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Now, these verses are just packed 
with important doctrines and insights. And as we have studied so often with John, he may use a phrase here or a phrase there, and it carries with it just a, a tremendous amount of doctrinal baggage. And if we're really going to understand what he says, we have to unpack that baggage. Otherwise, we just can read through this very rapidly, hit the high points, and miss a lot of the important dynamics that are referred to in these three verses. So we began last time with looking at the first phrase, I am writing to you. Writing, we said, was a, first, was a present active indicative first person singular of the Greek verb grapho, which means to write. It is an aristic present. Present tense normally means continuous action. But when a writer uses it as referring to his present tense activity as he's putting pen to paper and writing, it has a point of time emphasis. It's not continuous. It's talking about this moment when I'm writing. And that's what John is emphasizing here. And that introduces us to the whole doctrine of inspiration of Scripture. How do we know that God inspired Scripture? What are the claims that Scripture makes for itself? Now, last time, so that uh, we catch everybody up with where we are, we started off with the definition of inspiration. It comes from the Greek word theotnoustos, which literally means God breathed. From the Greek word theos, meaning God, noustos, meaning breathed or breath. And it means literally that God breathed out Scripture. He exhaled Scripture. The image is of breathing. We inhale, we exhale. And the writers of Scripture inhaled what God exhaled. And then they exhaled the writings of Scripture. He is the source of Scripture. This is not inspiration like we might think of uh, of Shakespeare having been inspired when he wrote uh, his sonnets. Or we might think of... Uh, Wordsworth being inspired when he wrote his uh, poetry. Or we might think of Mozart as having inspiration in terms of his creative genius in writing his uh, uh, music. That's not what we're talking about here. That has to do with human talent, human ability. Inspiration of Scripture has to do with the fact that God is the source breathing out Scriptures. So we have a definition, an important definition to understand. God, the Holy Spirit, emphasizing the fact that it is ultimately the role of the third person of the Trinity, God, the Holy Spirit, to reveal God to man. God, the Holy Spirit, so supernaturally directed the human writers. In other words, it was in a way that did not negate their individual personality. It's not a mechanical thing. It is that the Holy Spirit is disclosing, unveiling God's plan, purposes, and nature to man. The only way man can know about God is if God reveals himself, tells something to man about himself. The Bible is not a record of man's experiences with God, although that there are places where that's true. It's not a human book about God. It's not a human book about religious events. It is God's revelation to man. God is the one who is the author uh, behind the human writers of Scripture. The Holy Spirit is the one who teaches us, helps us to understand His Word. The human authors come from a variety of walks of life over a period of 2,000 years. They have a variety of backgrounds, variety of cultures. They are all Jewish. They all uh, 
but they come from a 2,000-year period of time, and they come from different cultures. Moses came out of an Egyptian culture. Daniel functioned in a Babylonian culture. Ezra was raised in a Babylonian culture. The culture of Israel and Judea at the time of Christ was vastly different from that of uh, the southern kingdom of Judah during the time of the monarchy, and that was different from the culture in uh, Israel during the time of the judges. So they come from different cultures, different backgrounds, and yet they write all that they write without contradiction. They agree on all of the major themes. They agree even in the minor details. Down to the minutia, there is consistency. We could not take... um, 40, 50, 60 human authors in any other field, no matter how closely they might agree with one another, and have them agree in this close and tight a detail. I was thinking the other day that even if you took five of us that are close friends, we all went through seminary at different times, we all came up with, and we agree about 98% with one another, but there are still areas of disagreement. We interpret some passages of Scripture slightly different from one another. And here you have over 40 human authors of Scripture writing in complete consistency down to minor detail. We saw that the Holy Spirit supernaturally directs the author so that it's not through some mechanical means of dictation. God doesn't obliterate their their intelligence, their vocabulary, their individuality, their personality. Yet he guaranteed that what they wrote was free from error. We see their style, we see their personalities, we see their emotions come through the text, but yet God does not uh, allow them to write error. We saw the message is complete, that God, the Holy Spirit, so supernaturally directs the human writers of Scripture that without waiving their human intelligence, vocabulary, individuality, literary style, personality, personal feelings, or any other human factor, His complete and coherent message to mankind was recorded. It's complete. That means it's sufficient. It gives us everything we need in order to live life, solve problems, and to advance spiritually. Furthermore, it's coherent. It was revealed to be understood. Too often you read people say, well, I'm not sure. Recently I've been doing a study uh, on a a particular subject, and there have been a lot of uh, new interpretations come into uh, evangelicalism in the last 30 years since I was a student in seminary Uh, and you didn't have this kind of disagreement and now many writers are rejecting what has been a traditional interpretation of these passages but they can't tell you what it really means once you reject the traditional interpretation then the meaning becomes somewhat obscure and I keep wanting to make the point that God wrote this to make a point he wrote this to say something rather than to simply confuse or muddle or obfuscate the issue. He wrote to communicate something clearly, so we have to decide what it was. God has written a complete and coherent message to mankind, not to angels, not to any other creature, but to mankind, recorded with perfect accuracy in the original languages of Scripture, the very words bearing the authority of divine authorship. So, inerrancy is the word that is used to describe the fact that the original Manuscripts were without error. Error crept in in copying and transmission, but that does. But those errors are mostly grammatical, spelling, uh, maybe leaving out a phrase here or, or duplicating a phrase there. The the 
problems that textual criticism deals with are not problems that relate to anything uh, doctrinal or theological. The key verse is 2 Timothy 3.15-17. Timothy is told by Paul that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. That refers to the Old Testament. All Scripture, that would include the New Testament, is breathed out by God. That's our phrase, theot noustos. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God, that's the believer, may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Now, those aren't, that's not the best way to translate that. We'll look at that in a minute. Four words that we must understand. Verbal. We talk about verbal inspiration. The very words are inspired. That's what verbal refers to. The very words are inspired. Each and every word is inspired. Second, plenary. Plenary means the whole of Scripture. It is all equally inspired. There is no portion of Scripture that is more inspired than another. That's the problem with the red-letter Bible. Red-letter Bible makes a theological statement that is false. And that is that the words in red are more the words of Jesus than the words that are in black. But it is all the Word of God. 1 Corinthians 2, 16 tells us that it is all the mind of Christ or the thinking of Christ. We have the mind of Christ. So it all should be red-lettered, not just some of it. So the fact that you have a red-letter Bible, that just that says something theologically that is inadequate. Every word is equally inspired and equally stated by God. Third, it's infallible. That means it's authoritative. It is the Word of God. It is not man's Word about God. It is not human opinion. It is God's Word, and every word is equally authoritative and binding. And fourth, it is inerrant, meaning without error. Now, that only applies to the original Autographs. It doesn't apply to the copies because copies errors crept in. It doesn't apply to translations because uh, there can be errors of translation. It just refers to the original documents. But if you have originals that are without error, you're in much better shape than if you have an original with error. If I were to stand up here and dictate a letter. You remember back when we were in elementary school and we had to take dictation? I hated that. And um, if I were to stand up here and dictate a short one paragraph to everybody, and everybody wrote down what I said, some of you would miss things. You might misspell a word here or there. You might leave a word out. You might rearrange a couple of words. And then if I were to lose the original, it would be very easy for us to reconstruct what the original was, even though some of you might have a few problems in what you wrote down. We could compare them and we could reconstruct the original. However, if the original document has errors in it, then you're just going to recopy those errors and there's no way of telling what's true and what's right. Then the authority goes to the individual and say, now I have to decide what of this is God's word and what of it is just man's word. And all of a sudden, now you, the individual have become the authority judging God rather than letting the Bible be the authority to judge and evaluate us and to speak to us. Those are the first two points we looked at. The definition, 
Secondly, terms. And then the third thing we looked at was the mechanics of inspiration as given in our verse 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. I want to take a little more time to bring out some things we didn't talk about last week. First of all, this first first verse reads, All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching. Now, in the original Greek, what you have is an adjective, pasa, and the noun graphe, meaning all Scripture, and then that is followed by an adjective, theopneustos. There's no verb there. Now, in English, you look up there and you see the word is, and you say, well, that's the main verb. But there is no is in the first phrase of the verse. What you have is an adjective modifying a noun. Then you have another nominative adjective, theopneustos, linked with a conjunction to another nominative adjective. That has led some people to want to translate this. You have to supply the is. And the question is, where does the is go? Have I confused you sufficiently? Should it be all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable, or should it read all Scripture inspired by God is profitable? You see, there's a vast difference in the meaning of those two sentences. If it is all Scripture is inspired, then you're stating that every single Scripture, every single verse is breathed out by God and is also profitable. But if you're saying that all Scripture inspired by God, then there may be some Scriptures that aren't inspired by God. You see the difference? And there are some translations that have taken it that way. So what we find here grammatically is that you have two predicate nominatives here, or excuse me, predicate adjectives. And they should be treated as predicate adjectives, and the is should be inserted prior to uh, the noun theopneustos. And this fits a point of grammar that when you have your head noun that followed by a second uh, anarthrous noun, theopneustos does not have the article with it, and the all serves as an, functions like an article giving definiteness to the scripture, then the second, more general noun is taken as a predicate adjective. Now, that goes past some of you, but that's okay. We have to establish the point. It's a grammatical principle. So it should be translated, all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching. Now, that brings us to... Understanding the last two phrases, or the next two phrases in verse 17. They're profitable for teaching, that is doctrine. That's why doctrine is important. It's teaching. It's not just some abstract dogma generated by theologians in some ivory tower, but doctrine is the principles extracted from the scriptures through Bible study, categorized so that we can understand them. We are designed to think categorically. We learn everything categorically. What we do with doctrine is you compare Scripture with Scripture and because the Scriptures do not address every issue in every verse. So you compare Scripture to Scripture and put together what the Bible teaches on a particular subject as you go from Genesis 
to Revelation, much like we're doing on the subject of inspiration. So all Scripture is inspired by God or breathed out by God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof. That means it, it challenges us where we're wrong. It tells us we're wrong. That means that everybody at some point or another is going to have their toes stepped on. It's not always a pleasant experience to have the spotlight of the Word of God shine itself on our lives. So often when people come to church, they want to leave and go home and feel uplifted, inspired, and good about life. Well, sometimes when you are confronted with the truth of God's Word, it's not pleasant. It doesn't make us feel good. And the Holy Spirit is, in fact, causing uh, us to be aware of areas where there needs to be change. So we are being reproved, and we need to have correction. We need to change the way we think. And for training in righteousness, that's application. Notice it's a chain of events that starts with doctrine and ends in training. It doesn't start with doctrine and end with doctrine. It's not some sort of intellectual academic head trip. It is designed to produce a goal which is changed living for a purpose. Verse 17, that the man of God, that refers to a believer, may be adequate. Now, that's an awfully pusillanimous term. It seems rather insipid, just adequate. I don't want to be adequate. I want to be great. Well, the word adequate in the Scripture is the word artios, which means qualified, proficient, or competent, skillful, equipped. Here we have it. Artios means to be qualified, proficient, competent, skillful, or equipped, so that the man of God may be qualified, may be proficient, may be confident, skillful. And second, the word for that the man of God may be adequate or rather equipped, fully qualified and proficient, and then equipped for every good work. And the word for equipped is the Greek exartizo, and exartizo means to be educated, edified, and prepared. It is a training manual to teach us how to think first and act second. Actions should follow from the way we think. I'm always amazed, though, how many people, I'm not sure if they're really thinking, but they think they have changed the way they think, but you don't see any visible change in the way they live. But the focus is on changing. Too many churches you go and everybody wants you to change on the outside. You know, don't do this, don't do that, do this, do that. And what the Scriptures teach is don't put the emphasis on that. That becomes external, and that's legalism. Put the focus on change of thinking. So 2 Timothy 3:16 and 17 emphasize the fact that God is the source of Scripture. It has a purpose. Its purpose is to change our lives that we may be uh, prepared, proficient, and uh, equipped to do what God wants us to do. Another way of looking at this, as we developed last time, is on the basis of the syllogism. Now, a syllogism is deductive reasoning where you're arguing from are reasoning from general to specific. From general to specific. So we have two general principles. Now, the basic rule in a syllogism is if the premises are correct, then the conclusion is correct. So premise number one is that God is absolute veracity or truth. God is truth. Romans 3, 4 states that. May it never be. Rather, let God be found true, though every man be found a liar. God is truth. Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. God is truth. That's our first principle, first premise. Second premise, 
God is the source of Scriptures. We just saw that in 2 Timothy 3.16. God is the source of Scriptures. So if God is true and God is the source of the Scriptures, then we can conclude, therefore, the Scriptures are absolute truth. The Scriptures are absolute truth, and this is stated clearly by Jesus in His high priestly prayer in John 17, 17, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. And that really should be translated with a capital T. Thy word is absolute truth. As the psalmist says, In thy light we see light. God is the one who defines what truth is and what error is. This is a sample of of deductive reasoning. Now, somebody at this point always raises the objection, yes, but the problem with this isn't God. The problem is he's doing it through men, through fallible sinners. So, how can God guarantee truth from error? Well, let's look at the mechanics in 1 Peter chapter 1, 20 and 21. There, Peter writes, But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. In other words, understanding what God says isn't based on your subjective frame of reference. God communicated the prophecies of the Old Testament to communicate something specific. It's objective revelation, and you can't just go into the Scriptures and try to make it mean whatever you want it to mean. It's not, no prophecy is a matter of one's own interpretation. It wasn't even a matter of the prophet's interpretation. God is, gave Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos information, and they communicated that information. They didn't interpret it first and then give it. They gave exactly what God gave, so the prophecy wasn't a matter of an individual interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. The prophecy that's in Scripture did not generate from the will of the prophet in the Old Testament. He didn't sit down and say, okay, I'm going to manufacture this. It came because he was moved. The Greek word is pharaoh. It's used of the wind blowing and pushing a sailboat across a lake. And there you have unseen activity, but nevertheless it is moving the craft in a particular direction. The men were moved by the Holy Spirit who spoke from God. In other words, it comes once again from God the Holy Spirit, not man. It's not self-generated. They didn't write their experiences. They wrote what God told them to write. So we see from this verse that Prophecy does not originate from any act of human volition or human will. That the Holy Spirit is the agent of revelation. And what men wrote did not originate from them, but from God. And in the process, God prevented the sin nature of the writers from diverting, misdirecting, confusing, or misleading them in some way so that they would record something of error. Now, we've looked at the deductive argument. We've looked at the question of human involvement. There's another point that we need to realize, and that is that there's a fallacy in the, in the assumption that if man is involved, it's going to guarantee error. If that's true, then Jesus could not have been impeccable because the incarnation of the second person of the Trinity involved a sinner. Her name was Mary. But God guaranteed that that which was born from Mary was without sin. And Jesus never sinned. He wasn't born with a sin nature. Adam's original sin was not imputed to him 
and he never committed any impersonal sins. Scripture says, He who knew no sin was made sin for us. What qualified him to go to the cross was that he was sinless. And we are sinners. And because he was sinless and perfect righteousness, he could go to the cross and he was qualified to pay the penalty for our sins there on the cross. So there you have another example of where the divine is mixed with the human and it is guaranteed, the result is guaranteed to be free from error. Now having said all of that, we ought to use, also look at an inductive argument. We looked at a deductive argument, which argues from general to specific. And now we're going to look at an inductive argument. In an inductive argument, you start from the particulars, from the data, from the evidence in the Scriptures, and then you compare the evidence and you draw conclusions from that. It is reasoning from the particulars to the general. So we will look at a, an inductive argument, and we'll look and see how Jesus used the Scriptures. Did Jesus use the Scriptures in a merely general way? Did He just use the Scriptures as if it was generally true and to draw general principles from the Scriptures? Or did He emphasize the minutia of the Scriptures? Did He build His arguments on minute, obscure, even obscure details of the Scripture and uh, support His argument from what we might call to be, we might even think to be irrelevant Minutia. Let's look at what Jesus says. Matthew 5, 17 and 18, Jesus says, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Now, what is his promise here? What is he saying? Well, he's referring, first of all, to the law and the prophets. And that's a term that refers to the Old Testament scripture. The Old Testament was divided up in the Jewish canon, was divided into three sections, the Torah, the Nevi'im, and the Ketuvim. The Torah is the law, the instruction, the Pentateuch, the first five books of Moses. The Nevi'im were the prophets, the early prophets and the latter prophets. The Ketuvim were the wisdom writings, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. Now, often the Old Testament would just refer to as the Law and the Prophets, and that covered all three sections. Sometimes it was just referred to as the Law. Other times it was referred to as the Prophets. But that term referred to the entirety of the Old Testament. So Jesus is talking about the Old Testament Scriptures here. And he says, I did not come to abolish them. Now, abolish means to do away with something, to nullify it, to annul it. Whereas he says, I did not come to abolish, to nullify, or to do away with the Old Testament Scriptures. I came to fulfill them. I came to bring to pass that which they prophesied. I came to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, he says, until heaven and earth pass away, which refers to the destruction at the end of the millennium after the great white throne judgment, when the present heavens and earth are destroyed and replaced by a new heavens and earth, until the heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass away from the law. Now, if you go back and you read that in, your, in a King James Version, it said no jot or tittle 
will pass away from the law. Well, the smallest letter was really jot in the, or yod in the original, and refers to the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. It looks like an apostrophe in English, and it is the Hebrew letter yod. It's just a very small letter. And stroke here refers to, in the original is tittle, and it refers to a part of a letter. For example, look at the difference one small stroke can make in the words at the top of the screen. Lit is the first word. Then you add a little section to it, and the L is turned into an H. Lit becomes hit. Now you close off the bottom of the H, and it becomes bit. Well, there's a lot of difference between being hit and being bit. The difference between a cat and an oat. You have the first letter C, just close it off, and it becomes an O. Now, would you rather have cat meal for breakfast or oatmeal for breakfast? <laughs> you see, a tittle makes tremendous difference in the meaning of a word. Then you have other words like fun, close off the F, and it becomes pun. Add another stroke, and the pun becomes a run. Close it off at the bottom, and that becomes a bun. So just a little stroke makes all the difference in the world as to what the word is and the meaning of the sentence. Now, underneath that, I have some Hebrew letters. The, the first row here, this is the Hebrew letter Dalit, and the second letter is the Hebrew letter Resh. The first is equivalent to our D, and the second to our R. If you'll notice, the only difference between the Dalit and the Resh is this little tick to the right of the vertical stroke. That's why you have, <laughs> I have to wear my glasses a lot when I read Hebrew. Those things are very important, but they seem very small. Also, the difference between a, uh, a Chet, a He here is a He, a soft H, and a Chet here, the, uh, more of a guttural H, is simply that it's closed off on this open, there's a little opening on this vertical stroke, and it's closed off right here on the other vertical stroke. And that makes all the difference in the world as to the meaning of a word. And what Jesus is saying is that the inspiration of the Scriptures doesn't just extend to the ideas. It just doesn't extend to the concepts and the general thrust of the sentence. It extends down to the very letters and portions of letters of each and every word. What that tells us is that it is those individual letters that are going to make the difference between uh, the tense of a verb, one tense and another, between a present tense and an aorist tense, between a plural and a singular, between a dative case and a nominative case. And that, in turn, changes or affects the very meaning of the sentence. So what Jesus is saying, by implication, is it's important when you're studying the Scriptures to pay attention to the most minute details in the passage. That's why I take the time to exegete from the original languages and to show these things to you uh, from the pulpit. And not because I am trying to impress everybody with the fact that I know Greek and Hebrew. 
I don't know why anybody would want to do that. And yet, the sad thing is today that in almost every seminary you go to, pastors are told never, ever refer to Hebrew or Greek from the pulpit. You're going to intimidate somebody. You're just showing off. That's not the point at all. What you're demonstrating is the details of the Scripture. And why you say the Scripture means certain things, you're giving validation. And to help people have a greater understanding of what the Scriptures actually teach. I mean, it's just absurd, shallow, and superficial to think that by referring to the original languages, you're going to intimidate somebody. fact is, if anybody comes in here and their gray cells are connecting and they're thinking, then they should recognize that that uh, at least their intellect is being respected from the pulpit and somebody's not just blowing smoke at them, but that I'm trying to demonstrate why the Scripture says what it says and so that we can have an accurate understanding of just exactly what it is that God said. So when Jesus says that every jot and tittle, no jot or tittle will pass away from the law until all is accomplished... He is emphasizing that every detail of every word is important and equally inspired. Jesus is not saying that it's just the ideas. Some people get that, that impression that, well, it's the ideas that are inspired. No, the, you only know ideas from the words. You change the word, you change it from oatmeal to cat meal, and you've got a different idea. The words are important. The details are dependent upon the most uh, intricate details of the passage. The other thing is that Jesus is also saying that these things are always true. They're not just culturally true. Just because you can say that, oh, that's the way they thought back then at the time of Jesus, but we know better now. Back then they just were assigning uh, the cause of sickness to spirits and demons, but now we know better, so, so we don't believe in demon possession or demon influence. We just believe that you've got a psychological problem or a chemical imbalance, so we'll straighten out the problem with the right prescription or uh, uh, $6,500 in psychothera- bills to the psychotherapist. Let's look at another example of how Jesus uses, uses the Scripture. Turn to John chapter 10. Turn with me to John chapter 10. We'll see how Jesus bases his argument on the Scripture. Verse 22. John 10:22. This takes place at the time of Hanukkah, the Feast of Dedication in December. The Feast of Dedication was to celebrate the time during the Maccabean Revolt when they had rededicated the temple and they were lighting the the lamp, the golden lampstand, the temple, and they only had enough oil for a 24-hour day. And miraculously, the oil lasted for eight days. So they're there to celebrate the Feast of Lights, the Feast of Dedication, Hanukkah. It's winter. We're told in verse 23, Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon, and he is accosted by his antagonists, the Jews. These are the leaders of the Jews, the Pharisees, and they gather around him in verse 24 and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Now, we've gone through this in detail. Jesus wasn't keeping them in suspense. He had made the claim over and over again. They just didn't want to accept it. 
If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them and said, I told you, and you do not believe. The, the works that I do in my Father's name, these bear witness of me. I've given you my credentials. I've healed the sick. I, I've uh, given sight to the blind. I've cast out demons. Those are all the credentials that Isaiah the prophet prophesied, and yet you still reject my claim. You do not believe because you are not of my sheep, verse 26. My sheep hear my voice, I know them, and they follow me. So he goes on down to verse 29. He states, My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of my Father's house. And then he makes the statement, I and the Father are one. Now in the English, that loses a lot in translation. What we find in the Greek, though, is that when Jesus uses the word one, see, English isn't inflected in the same way. We don't have a distinction between masculine, feminine, and neuter for the number one. But in the Greek, it is inflected for gender, and it's a neuter singular here that he uses and not a masculine singular. If he had used a masculine singular, it would mean I and the Father are the same person. And he does not say that. He does not say I and the Father are one thing. He says, or excuse me, he does not say I and the Father are one man or one person. He says, he uses a neuter, which means I and the Father are one in essence. I and the Father are one thing. We share the essence of deity. So he is clearly claiming to have identical essence with the Father, but to be a distinct person from the Father, which documents the doctrine of the Trinity. The Jews understood exactly what he was claiming. They recognized that in their light it was blasphemy. And so, verse 31, they took up stones again to stone him. They knew exactly what he was saying. And he's basing his argument on what? On the gender of the number. See, it's the detail. It's not some general idea. And then look how Jesus responds. As they're picking up stones to stone him, he uses an incredibly sophisticated argument. You just see how relaxed and calm. You almost see a smile on his face. Jesus answered them, I showed you many good works from the Father. I, I healed the, the lame and I cast out demons and gave sight to the blind. Now, now for which of these works are you stoning me? Let, let's make sure we understand the cause of the penalty here. The Jews answered, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, and because you, being a man, make yourself out God. There's no to be there in the original Greek. You make yourself out God. Jesus answered and said, Has it not been written in your law, I said, you are God's? Now, he is quoting from a passage in Psalm 82. Now, the 82nd Psalm is not a dominant psalm. That's not one that most of us would go to in order to prove the deity of Christ. It's not like the 23rd Psalm or the 119th Psalm. It's uh, not like Psalm 139. It's not it's like Psalm 90, some of the more well-known and, uh, psalms that people go to. It is a relatively obscure psalm. Now, if you or I were in the position Jesus was in, we would be going to the most obvious passage to support our argument. But Time and time again, Jesus goes to these obscure passages that none of us would necessarily go to, and he plucks out his defense from a relatively obscure psalm. 
And in that context, the psalmist is referring to the human leaders and judges of Israel and calls them by the name Elohim, which is the Hebrew for God. It's not God's proper name, Yahweh, but it is recognizing the fact that the governing authorities have their authority have their responsibility delegated to them by God. And so the judge in the courtroom, who has the ability to pronounce a sentence of capital punishment, so holds life and death in his hands, is functioning in the place of God. And so these human leaders are referred to by the name Elohim, or gods, because of the seriousness and the significance of the role they play in society. And Jesus' argument is, is, is incredibly shrewd and sophisticated. He says, if it's okay to call them God, and they were human, why is it wrong to call, for me to adopt, call myself the Son of God when I am the Son of God? So by his reasoning, plucking this obscure passage out uh, and using that against the, scripture, against the Pharisees, he then says, and the Scripture cannot be broken. In other words, you can't violate the Scripture just because you're mad at me and you want to stone me. The Scripture has the final authority. So we see in all of this that Jesus uses a sophisticated argument based on the minutia of the text. Turn over to John 8, back a couple of pages. Jesus is in a similar confrontation with the Jews in John 8:58. And he has said that, that um, to the Jews in verse 56, he said, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. And the Jews therefore said to him, You are not yet 50 years old. Have you seen Abraham? See, Abraham lived 2000 B.C. They say, Abraham lived 2000 years ago. How can you say Abraham saw your day? And Jesus answered, and he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am, ego eimi, present tense of the verb, indicating I have continual existence. Not only that, but ego eimi was the Greek translation of the meaning of the name of God, Yahweh, in the Old Testament. I am that I am. And the Jews clearly understood that by the use of the present tense, he didn't say before Abraham was, I was. He said before Abraham was, I am. We would almost think that was poor grammar except Jesus is emphasizing that in the present tense he continually exists. There never was a time when he didn't exist, and they understood that he claimed to be deity, and they did the same thing there they did in John 10. They reached to pick up stones to stone him. Furthermore, in another confrontation with the Sadducees in Matthew 22, 23 to 33, we don't have time to look at it, the Sadducees wanted to confound him and his interpretation of the law. So they made up a story. They said, uh, the Sadducees, remember, didn't believe in resurrection, but they're going to test Jesus on resurrection anyway. And they said, okay, a woman had seven husbands. The first one died, the second one died, the third one died, the fourth one died, the fifth one died, sixth one died, seventh one died. And now when she dies and goes to heaven, whose wife is she going to be of those seven? See, they're just trying to create some sort of problem for Jesus and you know, I would have convened a grand jury to find out what was wrong with why her husbands kept dying. But <laughs> Jesus addressed the heart of the matter. And the heart of the matter was that the Sadducees rejected resurrection. And so Jesus just ignores the whole thing, and he goes straight to a quotation from the Old Testament, Exodus 3, verse 6. 
And he quotes that where we read, Exodus 3, 6, he said also, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And then Jesus bases his whole argument in Matthew 22 on the fact that it says, I am the God of Abraham. When God the Father is talking to Moses in 1446 B.C., he said, I am present tense the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Abraham died about 2050 Isaac died about 1900 B.C. I mean, all these three men, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, had all been dead at least 350 years. And yet God uses the present tense saying, I am now in 1446 B.C. the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Jesus bases his argument for the reality of resurrection on the present tense of that verb. It's not an argument that I necessarily would have used. It's using, plucking an obscure verse out. The point I'm making is Jesus said that the most obscure details of Scripture are all equally infallibly inspired. And he based his arguments on that, arguments that could have, if they had failed, cost him his life. In fact, he grounded his life on the minutia of Scripture being correct. So we see from these points that, that the inspiration is verbal. The very words, the very letters are important. It's minute. Inspiration is to the minutia. Each detail is important. And third, it is authoritative. Now, in conclusion, there are three corollaries to the doctrine of inspiration we must not forget. Corollary number one. Though every word is equally infallible and authoritative, not every word is equally applicable to every believer. There are passages in the Old Testament that were addressed to Israel only, passages that relate to uh, making a sacrifice on the Day of Atonement in the temple in Jerusalem. That doesn't apply to us today because Jesus Christ has come and paid the penalty for our sins in full. So just because every word is equally infallible and inerrant, it is not necessarily equally applicable. You have to discern to whom the Scriptures were written and their purpose. Corollary number two. If every word is breathed out by God, then it is the responsibility of the pastor-teacher to investigate and exegete every word, the entire counsel of God, even those passages like Genesis 5 and Genesis 11 that contain all of the genealogies. Every word must be exegeted and taught by the pastor. The entire counsel of God must be exegeted and dealt with, though it is not necessarily dealt with in the same detail. When I teach through narrative literature in the Old Testament, I don't go through every single word like I do in a New Testament epistle. It's different literature and demands a little different approach. But the pastor must teach every passage of Scripture. And corollary number three. If every word is breathed out by God then the Bible is absolutely and totally sufficient for salvation, spiritual growth, and problem solving. If every word is breathed out by God, then every passage is sufficient. God has given us enough. We don't need anything else. The Word of God is enough for every problem in life. This is clearly stated in 2 Peter, 3, uh, 2 Peter 1, 3, and 4, seeing that His divine power has granted to us 
everything pertaining to life and godliness. Not some things, not most things, but everything pertaining to life. That is referring to every issue, every category of life and godliness. Eusebeia, which refers to the spiritual life. So we can't make this dichotomy between life and spirituality if they're two separate compartments. They're viewed in their... Uh, viewed together in the Scriptures as complementary and united. He's given us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. For by these He has granted to us His precious and magnificent promises in order that by them you might become partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. So when John says, I am writing to you, little children, he is conscious of the fact that he is writing the words of God and he is giving infallible, inerrant instruction to his congregation on how to live the spiritual life. And we'll look at those principles next Sunday morning with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this time that we have to look at your word, that it is your word. It is infallible, it is inerrant, and that you have given us the Holy Spirit to help us understand what you are communicating to us. Father, we thank you that the focus of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation is on your free gift of salvation in Jesus Christ. The Old Testament looks forward to it and the New Testament looks back to it and explains it. That we are all born sinners for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that you have provided a solution. And that solution is through Jesus Christ who died on the cross as the penalty for our sins, that He bore in His body our penalty, so that sin is no longer the issue. The issue is, what do you think of Jesus Christ? So if anyone is here this morning unsure of their salvation, uncertain of their eternal destiny, you can make that sure and certain right now. All you have to do is put your trust in Jesus Christ. It's not a matter of moral reformation. It's not a matter of bargaining with God. It's not a matter of changing your life, joining a church, or any other human factor. It is simply a matter of saying, Father, I believe Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins. And when you have faith in Christ alone, God the Father knows that, and at that instant you are saved, regenerate, and that can never be lost. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we have studied today, realizing that we have this great privilege of, a, of your word in our own language that we can understand, and that you have revealed so much to us, and that we might not take this lightly, but that we might make the knowledge of your word the highest priority in our life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.